A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And in this episode, I'll be continuing what we previously had last week, um, a little bit about Chernobyl, and last uh, last part one, I spoke about um, the origins of the Chernobyl dynasty. Not really, we didn't. I didn't go all the way back to the origins. That perhaps we'll I'll do in another opportunity uh, to the Maare Nayim, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl. But we started more with um, the Chernobyl Magid, Reb Muttel of Chernobyl, and his eight sons. And how those eight sons uh, built this dynasty that spread all over Ukraine. And um, I'll p- want to pick it up from there towards the end of the 19th century. But first I want to read a couple of letters. I got some good feedback both from that episode and I also had an episode on Reb Simcha Zelig Rieger, um, the Dian of Brisk. So I just want to read a couple of letters and I just want to also remind you at this opportunity that if uh, you do have um, an a, a episode that you want to sponsor, please be in touch with me about sponsorships. You want to advertise some, your company or anything you can sponsor. I'm also available for lectures and virtual tours and all the like. Please be in touch with me about that. And here goes a letter. This one is about the Simchazelik Rieger episode. Um, okay. I was once watching a basketball game in Eretz Yisrael and Simi Rieger was announcing. I mentioned to my uncle the name and he said he remembers that Simi Rieger's father used to come to Rav Gustman's yeshiva in Rechavia, the Netzach Yisrael Ramaylis yeshiva. At that time, his son was coaching basketball. He used to say, my son is the best basketball coach in the land. My uncle remembers that Mr. Rieger was a Bible critic. He told my uncle which is Reb Simchazelig's son. He told my uncle that he had made a deal with his father, Reb Simchazelig. A couple of older brothers had become socialists, so he promised his father that if he let him go to university, he would remain Shemer Shabbos for the rest of his life. Very good. That's an interesting addition to Reb Simchazelig's family, which I discussed at the end of that episode. And here's about the part one of Chernobyl. You mentioned the Chikoser. Uh, the one of the sons of the Chernobyl Magid. 
he married a anakal, a grandchild of the Baal Hatanya, the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad. So this linked the Chernobyl and Chabad dynasties. A Harnishteipel uh, descendant of the Chernobyl Magid married into the Tzans, the Devrechaim of Tzans family. So there are multiple branches of mainstream Hasidim, such as the current Satmar Rebbe's, who are Bal Hatanya Eneklach. That's that letter. I just want to point out that the words mainstream Hasidim were in quotation marks. So, you know, it's a, a, a judgment call there, what's considered mainstream. Either way, here's the next letter. I'm probably not the first one to confirm that indeed the Chernobler himself is said to have remarked that his sons were like the eight lights of the Menorah and that he was the Shamish. Very good. I didn't know that it was actually said by the Chernobler Magid, but that's good to know. Either way, we move along to uh, to pick up our story from what we were talking about towards the end of the 19th century when it's a time of crisis, uh, essentially. We, I mentioned all the different reasons that happened. There's a, a confluence of different uh, uh, factors that came into play at the same time of um, um, financial crisis and changing times. And uh, what happens eventually is emigration. The Tversky dynasty leaves the central Ukraine. And that happens in the decade or two before World War I, and especially in light of World War I, which changed over everything, and then especially, of course, central Ukraine falls right into the Russian Revolution, the uh, October or November Revolution. The Bolsheviks take over uh, the old Russian Empire. Ukraine is thrown into chaos because there's three forces at play. There's the Bolsheviks, the Red Army is fighting under Trotsky, and they're fighting the White Army, the Tsarist loyalists. But in Ukraine, it gets even worse because there are Ukrainian nationalists who are trying to get their independence altogether. And uh, the Jews find themselves in the uh, the crossfire, um, for sure by the Ukrainian nationalists and and the Whites, less so by the Reds, by the Communists, ironically. And um, but either way, until when the dust finally settles, so there's the Soviet Union, there's the communist regime, and the Chernobyl dynasty finds itself under communism. So they leave. Um, they, not all of them. We'll get to that. But there's a huge move of emigration, and it starts before. It starts, like I said, at the turn of the century. It's already starting. You have Trisk, which is the only branch of the dynasty that I mentioned already. That's in, not in the central Ukraine. That's all the way out in Volin. So they move into Poland. They leave. It, it's a whole story where they leave. I'll get to that also soon. But they, they go into independent Poland. Um, we'll get back to Trisk hopefully soon. Skver, which is another branch of the dynasty, they leave. And they go to Romania. And the Skver, the Skver court is established in Romania and remains there until after World War II. It survives that they survive the Holocaust and the Rebbe survives and they arrive in the United States after the war, but they're in Romania. They transfer from Ukraine to Romania. Racham Estrifka, which was another branch, they come to Israel. Everyone, and I mentioned that also last time. They're the first uh, Chernobyl branch to arrive in Yerushalayim. Until today, Racham Estrifka is the, one of the main Israeli branches of Chernobyl. They're more Yerushalmi, less Chernobyl-like these days, but um, that has to do with the generational effect um, and then Tolna, Makarov, Hornestipel, 
Chernobyl itself, they arrive in the United States. And they're the, from the first uh, Hasidic leaders to come to the United States. So there's, there's a, a, um, there's Chernobyl, in, as, as far as its comparison to other Hasidic groups, there are differences between them. There, there are a certain extent, at least in the late 1800s, early 1900s, somewhat changed later, but there is to a certain extent considered more or, or less, I guess, less uh, rea- reactionary, less, uh, you know, Galicia Hasidus, uh, which is a whole topic itself. Um, Galicia Hasidus was considered um, to be more fundamentalist, more, I don't know if extreme is the right word, um, but uh, and in a certain way, the Ukrainian Hasidus, the original ones like Sadiger and Rizhen, and also Chernobyl, were considered more moderate. Um, again, I don't want to use the word liberal um, because that's just not an accurate portrayal, but they're compared to Galicia, compared to Bells, compared to Tzans, um, they were considered a little more moderate. So once the revolution comes out, and the, the Russian Revolution, so the, and the borders are redrawn in Eastern Europe following World War One, So Hasidus, the Hasidic movement uh, is flourishing it's also time of crisis for the Hasidic movement but it, it, the the big courts are flourishing in Poland primarily and also to a lesser extent in Hungary but the Russian Hasidic groups primarily Chabad and Chernobyl are now in communist Russia and they have to go underground so Chernobyl is thrown into chaos by the revolution now many stayed in Soviet Russia um on one hand, you had the type of people who stayed were not exactly Rebbes of the Tversky dynasty. You had someone by the name of Arkady Tversky, who was the head of the Bolshevik secret police in, in Kiev. So you had that happen to the dynasty. So that, 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 that the younger generation is swept up with the revolution. He's obviously a, a scion of the dynasty. Um, and he becomes the head of the, the Bolshevik police in, in, in the Kiev area. In other words, in, in his home area, that's where they are. Hanna Tversky, another uh, member of the family, marries into the Bells uh, dynasty, but she became a communist and she left her husband for the Soviet paradise. She leaves Poland, leaves her husband, and goes into the Soviet Union. And 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 uh, so that happens as well. And it, what what interesting also happens is, and this is even before World War One. This is earlier on. Another Bell's Shidduch with the Tversky is a very interesting story. And David Asaf has, uh, Professor David Asaf has written about it. Um, so you had this um, Shidduch, this marriage between Bell's, which, like I said, was considered a more conservative, a more reactionary, a more fundamentalist Hasidic uh, uh, group, dynasty. And you had Chernobyl, which at that time was considered more open or uh, moderate, and uh, and there was the, one of the offshoots of Skver. To a certain extent, there was also an offshoot of Tolna, Racham Estrifka. Um, by the way, there's almost endless amounts of smaller branches of Chernobyl, like Zlatopol and Paltishan and Machnovka, which is today more of a, a similar to Bells, but then it was Chernobyl, Ovruch, um, several others. Almost all of them disappeared because of a combination of communism and the Holocaust. But either way, this Shpikov dynasty... So it was a Tversky Chernobyl dynasty, and there was a fellow by the name of Reb Yitzchak Nachum Tversky of Shpikov, and he goes ahead and marries the daughter of Rabbi Sacher Daiv of Bells, the the, the Rebbe Rabbi Sacher Daiv, and on the eve of his wedding in 
1910, he wrote an incredible letter to to the Yiddish secular uh, writer uh, Yaakov Denizen in Warsaw. He's, he's buried in the uh, Yiddish writer's Eichel in, in, in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. We go to it next to Weil Peretz and, and, and Ansky. The, some of the famous Yiddish writers are buried there. So Denizen um, is in Warsaw, and he's down in in Ukraine, Galicia, this, this Rabbi Tzlok Nachum, and, and he's this secular Yiddishist writer, and he's this Rebbe She'enikul marrying the daughter of the one of the most famous Rebbes in the world at the time. And he writes to him about his doubts and his feelings and his certain, to a certain extent, disillusionment with the, with the world that he's in, with the um, Hasidic Rebbe world. It reads almost like a confession. And it's an amazing document. Uh, he, he went on to become, despite all his doubts, he, went on, he stayed in the system. He went on to become a rabbi. He made a choice. He had pressure to become a rebbe, a Hasidic leader with a court, and he did not do so. He wanted to become a community rabbi, which he did in Ravaruska, which is not far from Belz. And he and his entire family were killed by the Nazis in Belzec in the Holocaust. Um, that that whole area of Belz and Ravaruska were sent uh, to the Belzec uh, uh, death camp. Um, but it's an important historical document either way because it describes the differences in dress and outlook between the Tversky's and the more conservative Bells. And he goes on to detail it. He said, we dress like this and Bells dresses like that. Now, we don't have many testimonies like this. We don't have many. We, one of the curiosities today uh, when we try to study Hasidus is we look around at the Hasidic uh, uh, groups today, and they're very distinctive dress. It's one of the first things that m- most people notice, and for many, that's that's pretty much the only thing they notice. Um, and and it, it kind of took a long time to develop. For the first couple of hundred years of the Hasidic movement, there was no distinctive Hasidic dress. And today, that's the most distinctive feature of the movement. So that's definitely a curiosity. Now, Hasidic dress is a great topic, which I hope to do in a future episode, and if you want to sponsor it, then by all means. Um, but it has to also do with the great crisis of the Hasidic movement, which they faced after World War I. In the early decades of the 20th century, the Hasidic movement was facing a crisis. They had been around at that time for, um, for almost two centuries, for almost 200 years, and, they, uh, and for the first time in their history, the first time since the Hasidic movement is in existence, their numbers were going down, not up. In other words, the demographic population of of of, of people who consider themselves Hasidim was was getting smaller, um, which is the first time it ever happened in actual numbers, um, not in not in relative numbers. Uh, well, maybe maybe also that. Either way, so that's that's another topic. To, what was the great crisis and um, which, which is a you know, it's a, an interesting topic, and how Hasidic dress and many, many other uh, things, education, yeshivas, and uh, fundamentalism, and all kinds of other things that, that that came into play to try to to stem the crisis, to try to deal with and and, and the challenges of the crisis at that time. Um, so that's that's the story of Hasidic dress. But either way, the the um, the, he, he describes at length the differences between the way Belzer's dress and, and the way the, the Chernobyl dynasty dressed, which was very different. And it's interesting, part of the dress, till today, if you go to Skvere, I remember growing up near, near New Square, 
and you saw the way. They, but one of the ways, one of the one of the ways that that's very distinctive is the Cossack boots that they still wear. Maybe only in the winter, I don't remember. But they wear these high, almost knee-length Cossack uh, leather boots. In general, just putting it out there, there's a cynical theory about pants length and tucking in and footwear in the Hasidic world that it's related to the depth of the mud in that area uh, in the spring or in the winter where the Hasidic dynasty originated from. And it's kept as a holy tradition until today, even though its origins are in the blata, in the mud. Now, I don't, I don't, I, there are people who are cynical about that. I, even though I'm cynical of plenty of other things, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing, actually. I think it's, uh, it's beautiful. I think about it every chassid when they wake up in the morning and they tuck in their pants at a certain length or put on a certain type of sock or boot or shoe and they get reminded of the mud and the roads of the town of origin that the Hasidic movement comes with. It's a deep sense of connection. I remember hearing how Lahavdil, obviously, how Derek Jeter described how in the Yankees locker room, so they uh, the management had made the decision after Thurman Munson was killed in a plane crash, so they kept his locker empty and forever just there as Thurman Munson's locker, and how his locker was next door, and every time he went in, he's like, wow, this is Thurman Munson's locker, and it's a big mechaev for me as a captain, and filling in his shoes as the captain of the team, and so on. So when you get dressed every day, you're connecting uh, to the past. You're reminded of the past. You're reminded of the mud and the roads of the Ukraine. And it forms a deep sense of connection. So that's very special. So it, it's, 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 it's a great thing to keep that uh, form of dress and uniform and, uh, and, um, and uh, that, that story. Either way, so Trisk becomes one of the largest uh, groups in the, in the, in the, uh, Chernobyl dynasty at this point because they're in Poland. They're in, they, they've, they've gotten safely out of the communist Russia and they end up in Poland. It's interesting. Originally, there was supposed to be a train station in Trisk when it would, they were building the Lvov, uh, Lublin railroad or whatever, Lvov Krakow. I don't remember which railroad they were building. And there was going to be a train station in Trisk and the Trisk Rebbe, I forgot which one, he opposed it because trains represented modernity. They're going to bring all kinds of influence to the town. It's going to change the commerce and the community and the economy. And he led a campaign against it. And because of the connections that he had, he was able to, he was successfully able to get it out of, uh, of Trisk. And the train station instead went through Koval, which was not far from there in Volin. And uh, what happens is that generations pass and Trisk remains a small, poor little shtetl and Koval, primarily because of the train station, which is what happened at that time. The economy boomed, the business was well, and the community grew. So eventually a later Triskareba moves to Koval, because that's where that's where it was happening. That's because of you know financial crisis, you had to move on. So he moves to Koval. Now eventually they move into deeper into Poland, and a lot of Trisker Hasidim in Lublin, in Warsaw, literally in the center of Polish Jewish life. So that was that would um that would be there they would be at the center stage and they would also be quite large, but it would also lead to their undoing because since they're in the middle of Poland, so they're completely wiped out in the Holocaust, and Trisk is very, very small, almost uh, almost non-existent uh, today. Unfortunately, very small um, compared to what it was at that time. But some of the great Rebbes of the Chernobyl dynasty actually stay in the Soviet Union. They attempt to keep the Hasidis going with great personal sacrifice. They're chased by the Bolsheviks. They're chased by the Evsektia. 
which I've spoken about in another episode. They're exiled. Some of them, one or two of them, is exiled to Siberia, where they live off packages sent to them by their Hasidim back in Kiev under the Soviets. Uh, quite a few Tversky's from different Chernobyl branches. A very special and somewhat untold story, um, uh, which I don't know many people are familiar with. The different Tversky rebbes that stayed on for years and years, some of them decades, in under the communists in Russia to try to keep whatever little bit of a community they had going. Whatever the communists didn't get, almost all of them were wiped out by the Nazis a few years later. So unfortunately, it was almost completely snuffed out. But there was emigration, like I said. Some of them moved to the United States. So unlike their counterparts in Poland and Hungary, which were living in you know regular countries, so they didn't feel a need to move to the United States before the war, and they only arrive, whoever survived, after the war. Um, but the Chernobyl, they're the, they get the first chance to move to America because they're not running from the Nazis. They're 20 years before that. They're moving. They're running from the communists. So they're basically the first Rebbes to move into the United States are Tversky's in the 1920s and 30s. Interestingly enough, three of them called themselves the Tolna Rebbe, one of them in Philadelphia, one of them on the Lower East Side, and most famously, one of them in Boston. And these courts become quite Americanized. They don't have a lot of Hasidim, and even the ones they do are not, you know, at that time, the 1920s and 30s, are not, uh, you know, like the, the Ukrainian uh, Hasidim that they had uh, back before they moved. And Tolna in Boston eventually was uh, Rabbi Dr. Isidore Tversky, a son-in-law of Rav Soloveitchik and a professor at Harvard University. So it's unlikely that either one of those would have happened back in Ukraine. It's unlikely that he would have married into the aristocracy of the Lithuanian Torah world. And it's also unlikely that he would have become professor at Kiev University. But that's that's the nature of when the Hasidic groups tra- transfer across the ocean is that they become quite Americanized. Others, like Harnas Steipel, um, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Tversky, um, he ends up in uh, in Milwaukee, and then his sons go to Denver, and later on the dynasties, and in all kinds of other places in America. Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky was in Pittsburgh for many years. I don't know if he officially was had a Hasidic court, but, you know, he's... he's He's uh, a leader also as well. All of his famous descendants, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, or Michal Tversky for sure, in Milwaukee, and others. And uh, But it's interesting that one of them actually returned, one of them from a different, different branch, different branch of the dynasty, one of the other Tverskys, moves back to Soviet Russia. An amazing story. One of the, pretty much the only one we know of. Um, Rabbi Shlomo ben Sian Tversky um, left Soviet Russia for the United States. He tries to settle down in America. And then he said, America is a terrible place. There's, it's, it's not a place conducive for Yiddishkeit. We have to go back to Ukraine. He decides to go back after he left and escaped Soviet Russia. After several years, he says, I can't handle America anymore. This is still the 1920s. And he writes a letter to his Hasidim that he's coming back. The Hasidim back in Ukraine under the Soviets warn him that you should not. This is Stalinist Russia. There's no Yiddishkeit. You can't. And he does anyway. He says, I can't handle America. I'm going back. And he comes back to Ukraine. And he settles down there. He tries to keep whatever he has going. An amazing story, a unique. Rabbi Shlomo ben Sin Tversky of trying to, to go back. He preferred to be in Soviet Russia under Stalin and, uh, and attempts to keep it going there until his passing. Another Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Tversky of the original Chernobyl. He's from the state in Chernobyl. 
until uh, his, his branch of the dynasty had stayed in Chernobyl straight through from the beginning, generation after generation, and he has to leave Chernobyl eventually because of the communists. He moves to Kiev, and he kept a shul in Kiev. I actually interviewed his daughter. His daughter's still alive. She's in her 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, Chernobyl always immigrated to funny places in America, Denver, Milwaukee, Boston, Pittsburgh, and other places. So I went to interview this daughter of the Chernobyl Rebbe. She lives in Yerushalayim, so I was relieved. I don't have to go to some funny place where Chernobyl, you know, Yerushalayim I know. If I use ways in Yerushalayim, I use it for traffic, not for directions. But she lived in San Simon. I can't remember the last time I've been in San Simon. It's a Favarfana neighborhood in Yerushalayim. And I had to actually figure out how to get there. Either way, when I finally got to interview her, she described her job um, as an eight-year-old girl in Kiev. And her father has this illegal clandestine shul. And she, as an eight-year-old girl, was supposed to play outside whenever her father was having his secret minion in his apartment. And when she see a stranger coming, she was supposed to run inside and warn them. Amazing. That's the job of an eight-year-old. You know, I have kids that age, and it, uh, you know, to give them that type of responsibility is just beyond, almost inconceivable. Um, and uh, eventually he made it to Riga. He left the Soviet Union, and then he makes it to the United States, where he established his court in Bara Park. He's the first rabbi, I think I mentioned that in the Bara Park episode, uh, to be in Borough Park. His brother, by the way, Rebecca Soltorsky's brother, stayed. Um, and he wasn't a rabbi, he didn't act as a rabbi. But when the family went back to visit him in the 1970s, they showed me a picture of him. This guy has a big yarmulke, a white beard, like basically, like you could say in a certain sad way, the last of the Chernobyls in the Soviet Union, all alone, no court, no chasidas, no anything, but he himself stayed straight through. Mid 1970s, you'd never imagine even seeing a Jew looking like that in Soviet Russia. Um, like I said, some made it to Israel. Um, there's a certain pride that the Chernobyl dynasty has in the simplicity as an ideal, um, as the Pashtus, they call it. Several of them have told me that that was the ideal and the way, the outlook, the ideology of, of Chernobyl to a certain extent. Um, but uh, just to end off, the probably the largest, if not one of the largest Chernobyl branches today is Square, a uh, new square outside of Muncie. Uh, Skver made it to Romania. His Rebbe survives the war, and then he comes to the United States after the war. And in the 1950s, he, he's the first one before Satmar to open their own little town, New Square. And the old square, the old Skver, Skvira in Ukrainian, is back in Ukraine. So this is a new square. It's, it's, it's an interesting, because you have most Hasidus and are named just for the the old, the old, the old place, and it's Hasidus is actually called Square Hasidus, but the name of the town is New Square, and uh, so they to be to bring the old and recreate it in the new is a challenge, and it seems to have been uh, quite a successful endeavor. So that's um, a little bit about Chernobyl, just to finish up the picture. And this is Yehuda Geber Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, tours, lectures, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.